Hello, welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky. We are still in the midst of the fall renaissance, going through the vast majority of shows that are still continuously releasing on top of everything else that's going about. Since over the past week, we've added a couple more big hitters into the lineup in the sense that we ended up getting the Kaiji Soccer spinoff in terms of Blue Lock. We ended up getting the first episode after a what I believe is a nine-year hiatus Bleach is finally back on television screens, and we end up getting the A Thousand Year Blood War. And to top it all off, we finally got the premiere of the first episode of Chainsaw Man. And thankfully, it lived up to expectations. I was not disappointed. I was entertained. It gets me excited to see what essentially they're going to be able to cover and see if they can consistently keep the rest of the energy on a high as they have been throughout the beginning of this story. Really enjoyed the movie references in the opening, and at least the first ED where on at least one of the streams it wasn't one of the major tunes. That ended up getting uploaded to YouTube, but you ended up just getting a classic Chainsaw Man-themed ED, um, as well as some credits scrolling down. So that was kind of an interesting choice to go through, considering the amount of ED themes that are going to be lining up for the rest of the season. But you know what? Still enjoying it, and I'm going to try and press this to... Everybody who is still kind of on the fence about it, because now that I know that the first episode is not disappointing, I can go full hog on that one. And the final two pieces, I guess, that still haven't been added to the seasonal discourse of this case is that we still have another two weeks until the second season of To Your Eternity comes out, as well as Urusa Yatsura, Space Invader Lum, whichever name you want to call it, it will finally get its debut coming out on Thursday the 13th. So that's going to be something I'm really excited about, but I'm really curious how the rest of this is going to go, considering that my Saturday is basically lined up as packed as it is as I would be watching any other season. Considering the amount of shows I'm watching on Saturday alone equals the amount of content I normally go through a regular anime season, considering that now everything has been filled out, we basically have, you know, the smaller end where I can't necessarily call it like a full episode because I've already seen it, but going back and re-watching Berserk's Golden Age trilogy films in a weekly format, you know what, it's honestly fine. But then on top of that, you get My Hero's sixth season, the second core of Spy Family, the second season of Pop Team Epic, and now we get Blue Lock out of the category. And probably the most surprising piece that I ended up not realizing it was coming out this season is called Bochi the Rock, I believe, and that's... Kind of an interesting addition with all of the action and all the drama that's happening on Saturdays in particular. Because it's, you know, a very undersold, you know, cute girls doing rock band things. And that's honestly had a good first impression considering <laughs> just how obtuse the main character is. But I'm really curious to see what the cast is going to go through. And I'm really hoping that it lives up to the rest of the shows that it's a part of on Saturdays. But that's beside the point. I'll get to another episode once all the shows are out, so I can at least save that. But for now, we can get into a couple of other things that ended up popping up over the last week. In particular, we got some more Pokemon Scarlet and Violet news in the sense that we know it's going to be debuting worldwide on the Switch on November 18th. The big gameplay, what is it, Switch E-Direct or Nintendo Direct that they ended up putting out basically showed us how much of an open world it is. You have a lot of free reign, very much so kind of like Arceus. As long as you avoid uh, Pokemon at particular levels, there's a crafting system for a lot of items inside the world, which I don't know how I'm really going to be interacting with that too much, because I did like the change where it's just, hey, guess what? All the TMs, like the HMs were already permanent, 
So you could use them as much as you wanted. But now on top of that fact, you also have, you know, crafting's particular TMs. So they have a limited use, which I, considering that you can craft multiple, definitely seems like they're only single. So it's just like, oh man, I like the change where you could actually like use those and not have to be like, oh, well, if you use this one TM on one Pokemon and you can't buy it at the Superstore, well, guess what? You're shit out of luck. So that was kind of tragic. But the other piece of news that also came out recently is that they also debuted the Electric-type Gym Leader, who is a online streamer influencer online show type sort of deal. And people are already freaking out, but I'm just going to be cautiously optimistic. But it just seems like, I don't know why, but it brings it more into a more grounded in real life scenario that I don't really know matches and fits in well with the Pokemon universe. I just don't really know how to feel about it. I'm not, I don't hate it. It's just, it kind of just came out of nowhere. So that's like the major, only the, the only major piece that's kind of awkward, like leading into the rest of this. But to be fair, I'm really curious to see how they're going to be taking it for the rest of it since there's just over a month for it to go. I'm not probably not going to get it on the first day. I'll probably wait until like maybe December or Christmas to uh, like give me a better idea about if I want it or not. So if I, if that's the case, I can just get it for free. So that would be nice. The game that I'm more curious about coming out for even weirder reasons, but more just nostalgic in this case, is that the new Modern Warfare 2 that's going to be popping up, I believe at the end of October, is going to be a really weird flashback, especially if I can convince the rest of my buddies that played it all the way back in 2008 or 2009 it was, if we can get that original crew together and just start playing that on Steam, that's going to be really fucking weird, but I can imagine it's still going to be a blast to at least relive some of the overpowered pieces and overtuned parts of the gameplay inside of Modern Warfare 2 that really made it endearing to most and completely spiteful and chaotic and just detested by others. But I'm really curious, and I'm more excited about that than uh, any of the rest of the games that are going to be coming out this year. Considering that I don't have an Xbox and I don't have a PS5, I know that God of War is coming out and I know that there's going to be a couple of extremely huge and influential titles also popping up, but that's going to be beside the point. But then Nintendo didn't stop there because on top of that, we ended up getting the first look at the new Super Mario Brothers movie. It looks good. Like, it looks really good. They did a fantastic job at bringing that kind of world to life. I don't care for Illumination that much because they know they found their one product and they decided to milk it and its brethren until there's absolutely nothing else to be done, but what their team is able to do in bringing an already existing world to life inside of their own uh, engine, that's definitely what I was curious about, and I'm glad to see that it looks phenomenal. And I am really enjoying Jack Black's rendition as Bowser with the only handful of lines he was able to go through and kind of experiment with. The one that everybody else is pointing out towards is like, oh, Chris Pratt, he really decided to go through and try and get himself into the character as Mario and try to put on an accent where it's like, no, it's literally just Chris Pratt. <laughs> there's no any, there's just no other way to explain it in the sense that it's literally just Chris Pratt putting on his own voice to go and play Mario of all people. So it's just, everybody was kind of a little shaken up by that. But, it, and it's funny for now, but it's not really going to be unless like something changes in that aspect, which it probably won't by the time the movie comes out. And at least for there, it's going to be coming out uh, on April 7th in North America and April 28th in Japan. And then the one major piece of anime news related uh, to Netflix in this case is that JoJo Stone Ocean Part 3 has already been announced. Considering, I think it took like a year or at least nine months for Parts 1 and 2 to come out between each other. And so now they're like, oh yeah, no, guess what? Uh, JoJo's Part 3 is going to come out December 1st. 
it's like, what? So basically it's going to be concluding the rest of the story between episodes 25 and 38. And that'll be the finale of this part, I believe. Yes, it's going to be the final part. Considering I'm close to catching up, I believe I'm on episode 16 of uh, part 3. So I'm really... Or part, not part 3, uh, part 6. So I'm really curious to see how the rest of this is going to go because the stands are getting more interesting and the battles are getting even more chaotic than I would have ever expected. So I'm really interested to see how the rest of this is going to go, especially with the fact that Dio is being referenced too many fucking times for this to, like, even in part six. And it's just, you can just see that every single part of JoJo's, Dio has some way of worming his um, being just to fuck with the Joestar bloodline, and he never fails in that aspect. So... I'm really curious to see how the rest of this is going to go, and I am kind of excited to see where this actually takes us. Now, what I'm also excited to go through is that this idea has been kind of floating, been floating around in my head for quite a bit, considering that it's getting to the point now where I just passed 10 years of watching seasonal anime, and we're in the middle of uh, the fall 2022 season, so it might be a little early, but I kind of wanted to see how I would be able to do this, considering that if we do it by a full year, 2012 was the first year that I ended up going by seasonal anime every single year and when I really started to get into the medium and really start to enjoy it and get invested in everything that was a part of it. So leading into this, we're going to be going back 10 years into the past to kind of have a screenshot and have an idea about what essentially was happening around that time in not only the internet sphere but as into anime as a whole. And I guess the easiest way to start that off would be back in winter of 2012, beginning on January 6th, I believe, was the first set of shows. I definitely remember enjoying a lot of these, especially where it was just, I wondered why at the beginning or like every three month period, I would just lose a lot of my fucking time. But there were a handful of seasons in 2012, I believe by the end of the year, I stopped doing it, that I would watch every single debut of every single show, which in 2012, it was a little easier considering that the amount of shows that debuted only amounted to 23. So that is a far cry from what we end up having now, but it was like, oh, 23 shows? Sure, I'll give it an, I'll give it an opportunity and give every single one a watch. I didn't finish all of them because there were definitely a couple that like didn't really grab me initially. And so I didn't have the opportunity to go through and complete every episode, but at least giving them all a shot just to kind of figure out what my strike zone was, that was kind of the goal at the end of it. So through this season, I did end up finishing, of course, High School DxD, you know, Horny Teenager, blah, blah, blah. Um, I hadn't seen the beginning of the Monogatari series. So even though Nisei Monogatari was there debuting at this time, I didn't end up giving it a shot. Uh, but I did end up going through and watching D.A. Lies of High School Boys. Um, Adonatsu de Maturu was also like... I ended up re-watching it for the first time in about nine years. Just to go back and kind Because of, it was one of like the first anime that I did consume. Knowing that anime was anime. Because it was just... If you go back and think, oh yeah, well... Okay, sure, I watched Digimon, I watched Yu-Gi-Oh, I watched Pokemon, I watched uh, Bakugan and Beat'em'em. Like all of these localized shonen shows that were specifically made to sell children's toys. And it was just... Yeah, sure, but I didn't know what what those were in the first place. I thought they were American-made cartoons, and so I had no... I was just completely oblivious to it. The winter of 2012 was just, okay, get into this, figure out what you like, and go from there. So, and, and I believe one of the main reasons why I wanted to start on this in particular was when I was 
just randomly going through shows at the end of 2011, Zero no Tsukaimo or The Familiar of Zero uh, just came out. And that was my isekai fantasy trash when I didn't know what isekai fantasy trash was. I was, I was invested in, you know, of course, the Harry Potter harem sort of scenario that was going on with the main character and the main character has a power and he can wield swords in the middle of magic that can also negate it i believe it was either it was either negation or the fact that once he picked up this really old sword he became instantly became a sword master it's like i don't know but back to the reason at hand it was just because i was trying to figure out when there was going to be another season of this because i was incredibly invested in the characters in the magic world that they had and it was i believe it was on the same random streaming site that i was using and it's like hey guess what you know what familiar of zero is going to get a final season coming out in january 2012 and it's like oh fucking k let's do this it was fun to see that conclude and if i went back to rewatch it now i would probably fucking hate it but you know what that goes for a lot of the stuff that you end up getting into it, but I'm glad that it ended up leaving an impression on me enough for me to keep watching anime and staying inside of the medium as a whole. But I mean, besides that, you also had stuff like Moroto Pirates and a show that I don't fucking know why I decided to keep with it, but it was something called Brave 10. It's just really bad action and like ninjas in Japan being the bodyguard of a girl who holds a sacred power and not only was were the characters not endearing but the action was also really fucking stale so why I didn't keep watching this I don't know but I mean if I decided to get into it at least a season earlier then it would have been kind of crazy for all of the leftovers the stuff that started in 2011 that ended up carrying over into 2012 you had the hunter hunter 2011 remake you had for better or worse mirai nikki who was making the rounds on the pink-haired yandere love interest you had the second half of guilty crown which bad as it is i would imagine would have been a really cool thing to start out the rest of it Shihaya Furu was a show I would definitely not get into, but looking back on it now with how much I really love this series and loved the third season, it would have been a phenomenal like starting point for me to get on. I was watching random episodes of Shakugan no Shana's third season because that was the final one. And it's like, oh, that's weird. I was watching random episodes of Persona 4, the animation, because a buddy of mine you know, had played Persona 4, and, like, he was really invested in it. It's like, oh, so what exactly does this bring? <laughs> Why does he like it so much? And it's like, oh, well... It was kind of fun. The characters were enjoyable, but I had absolutely no idea what was going on, so I think I dropped it pretty soon. If there was anything that the early 2010s were definitely known for, it, they were known... They were still on, like, the 2000s era of just a special for every show, an ONA for every show, an OVA for every show, just everything. Like, there always had to be supplementary material to add on to the DVDs and the Blu-rays to go through, so there were always extra episodes, extra, like, supplementary content. It was just kind of nuts. So to be fair, it wasn't a great way to start getting into seasonals, but you know what? I stuck around for the long haul, so at least it did its job in that regard. And, like, looking back into 2012 as a whole, there wasn't as many major news pieces going around well there were definitely a lot of tragedies more than you would like to know but besides that there were a lot of uplifting points in terms of not only the indomitable human spirit but basically how we were able to move forward in not only society but in science as well considering that in that year we ended up getting the higgs boson being discovered by the hedron collider at cern uh the 2012 london summer olympics were a fantastic event to go through it was I mean, I didn't watch 2008, 
the 2008 Summer Olympics back when they happened, but I definitely watched the 2010 Winter Olympics considering that, you know, Vancouver, you gotta get in on that. I really wished I was born a couple years earlier so I would have been able to enjoy that kind of energy as a legal adult so I could have gone around and like drank with my buddies to have the opportunity to go through and watch some events and see Candace succeed in such a way with gold. But I wasn't able to do the same thing in 2012, but even then the summer Olympic stretch and schedule didn't really jive with me as much. So I don't remember a lot that happens on it, but I do remember the Curiosity rover having the opportunity to land on Mars and how big of a deal that was at the time. So that was a phenomenal step forward to actually have that go through and land on Mars and still have the opportunity to go through and continuously collect not only samples, but info on the planet itself. I mean, unfortunately, Coney 2012 also happened at that point in time, and we ended up getting... Now, like, I didn't... I don't believe it's the first time we had a COVID strain lead through, but there was a COVID virus, COVID-12, leading through Saudi Arabia at the time, which at this point was just called... M-E-R-S, uh, COVID, or EMC 2012, I was like, I was just, whoa, that's a really fucking weird coincidence, where it's just, looking back on that, it's just, oh, you know, there was a COVID strain that existed back in 2012, but it just, yeah, I didn't have, let's just put it this way, I was a teenager, I didn't understand, it was far away, and I didn't care. What I did think was cool was, is that Felix Baumgartner was able to break the fucking sound barrier by hurtling towards the Earth at an astronomical speed. He jumped from an air balloon hovering above Earth's atmosphere at 128,097 feet. And he not only broke the skydiving record, but he was also the first human being to break the sound barrier without the assistance of machines. I mean, besides his suit keeping him alive, but the fact that he was able to do that without any jet propulsion, without any kind of forward momentum being carried about it. It was just him and gravity. And that was fucking insane to watch as that unfolded. For four minutes and 19 seconds, he free-falled towards the Earth before opening his parachute. Like, unfucking believable That shit was crazy. And to top it all off, and just, like, breaking the sound barrier wasn't enough, he also broke the fastest free-for-all record by going at a record 834 miles per hour, or in this case, in regular units, 1,342 kilometers an hour. Unfucking heard of Something that's probably never going to get attempted or broken again, but just watching that shit, I just thought was just the most metal any human could go to exceed that amount of length from time and space to just to just jump like where are we dropping boys i fucking hate that i just said that but moving forward spring of 2012 in the anime sphere was also something that didn't really strike me as often it was the kind of the same deal i started the first episode on almost every show but the what i came away with i'm fucking shocked in terms of the shows that I actually watched to completion, which in this case, you know, I watched Sankarei, which doesn't really hold up nowadays. Hyari and Narukusan is also, like, something where it's just, hey, let's just make eldritch horrors and abominations into cute anime girls. It's just, no, don't ever fucking do that again. Achikochi, to be fair, though, if the whole cute girls doing cute things or the cutesy slice of life... Like, if you just wanted a very grounded, slow, down-to-earth, relaxing show, this was probably the first one that I ever watched. And 
it was easily the second best show that I ended up watching that season because it was just, yeah, no, it was, I think, off after the first minute of the first show, it's like, oh no, oh no, so Mickey's just cute. <laughs> it's just, what the actual fuck is going on with this? And it's just like the, like the tiny, like that was my first indoctrination to Moe and it, unfortunately worked for a good amount of time and it was just oh man she was adorable especially with all the interactions she had with her friends and on her crush it, it was phenomenal what well, wasn't phenomenal and also what i want to go back in time and ask why the fuck did i ever finish this was uh the shining hearts adaptation of the bread video game where a former swordsman shows up on the beach losing all of his memories and they go around <sighs> I've just wiped all of this from my mind because it's incredibly easy to forget as well, where it's, it was mostly something along the lines of he used to be, you know, a great warrior who failed in his last battle and he lost his memories and washed up on the shore of some quaint fantasy town. And then not it was 11 episodes of walking around doing nothing and none of the characters were endearing and I didn't care about fucking any of them. And then the last episode comes out and he regains all of his memories and it's just, oh, I'm a badass now. Let me go and sacrifice myself to save this town. And I can't remember if he just left or if he just vanished into thin air. I don't know. It was really fucking weird. And on top of the rest of it, it's like, oh, it was <laughs> like, tr I'm trying to articulate how bad this show was. But that's unfortunately all I can go and all I can say about it is that it deserves to just fade into the embers of time and just be completely forgotten about. Thankfully, what I did remember was the first Kyoto Animation show that I ever watched, and that was Hyoka. It was and still is, I believe, the best show done by Kyoto Animation because it encapsulates every single other slice-of-life high school pseudo-romance show to a T, but it does every single one of those silly and overdone tropes, like, down to perfection. Like, it is the perfect high school slice of life show, which does not sound engaging, it doesn't sound interesting, but the way that the directing goes inside of Hyoka, how beautiful it looks, the way they're able to consistently not only do solo vignettes, but also continue on with, like, ongoing plots that take a couple of episodes to go through. Oreki is kind of just a pseudo, almost knows everything main character, and it's kind of crazy what his powers of deduction are able to come down to at the end of the day, but it doesn't matter because I just enjoyed the interactions between not only the main four, but everybody else that they end up meeting inside of the school, and it's still just phenomenal. I mean, going back to rewatch it after years and years and thinking there's like, okay, it was one of my first shows, it was a fluke, It's it's got to have deteriorated over time. And to my surprise, when it didn't, I was like, oh, oh, it's actually really fucking good and even better on rewatch. So that, considering, like, now that I know Kyoto Animation, now that I knew who was inside the director's seat and all the people behind the team and what they were able to do to elevate this relatively simple story, it was still a phenomenal effort done by everybody else. So in terms of Kyoto Animation, Hyoka, I believe, is their best work, where my favorite work is Tomiko Market, which... Next year, I might, <laughs> if I do this again next year, I'll probably go over Tomiko Market and just continuously praise that show even more than I already did in the Valentine's episode, but that's beside the point. I'm also kind of shocked that inside of that season, I didn't, because I didn't know who was doing any of these shows, I didn't 
I, I, I dropped Kuroko no Basuke after one episode. I didn't know what Fate Zero was because the second season started to air on that one after a split core. Excel World, I hadn't see, I hadn't watched or talked about a show that is going to be coming up later in this episode, and so it also kind of looked stupid. Surprisingly went through an episode of Kids on the Slope, and I didn't like it, and then came back to it years later, and it's like, uh, hello, dude, it's Shinichiro Watanabe, hello, and, and so it's just, I don't know why I didn't decide to go in and have the opportunity to watch it, but it was like, oh, 60s Japan, eh, it's not that interesting, it's just, well, don't worry, you'll find it interesting. And at least besides the major pieces of news online going through, probably the biggest influence on a lot of the content and pop culture as a whole, as it was finding its footing, was YouTube. And like leading into 2012, what who was at the top of the list, which of course, like Ray William Johnson was doing his reaction videos and was just sitting on top in terms of like easily consumable content, stuff that you could upload daily and consistently like racking up views to make sure you were always in the collective conscience before the reaction thing like really took off. Doing it back in 2012 and using like daily pieces of the internet to actually go through now that YouTube was getting more and more traction for the rest of it, like Ray William Johnson like easily found that formula and just skyrocketed that idea to its utmost potential where nowadays everybody kind of just does the same thing but back then really funny really endearing and at the time it was endearing with Nigahiga because he was this used to be at the top and then became second after Ray William took the top spot inside of at least the subscriber count I don't remember subscribing or watching a lot of his content I didn't really find too much of it funny but it was still fun enough at the at the time whenever you would see like any random video of his pop-up where it was just like standard Asian stereotypes as well as a couple of music videos here and there, so that was fine. Smosh, I never... Mm, I think I remember watching a handful of Smosh's like either inanimate objects fights or food versus food fights. Just very vague stuff, but it also it was something that I never really uh, like clasped onto. PewDiePie at the time through 2012, got the most meteoric rise of popularity and subscriber count out of anybody on the platform inside of that year. Like, that was where he just broke the into the stratosphere and, like, took... It would didn't break the top spot immediately, but he would soon do so come into the next couple of years. But it was definitely 2012 where he hit his meteoric rise, and that is was just... And the sky was the limit for him at that point. Looking back on it, I think the biggest pieces on the stuff that you could upload and accomplish inside of that, especially when it comes to video editing, you had Freddie W and Corridor Digital who were just like at the forefront of all of that kind of stuff with every single one of their creative videos where a lot of them did revolve around first-person shooter games as well as, what was it? I believe Guitar Hero was Freddie Wong's like big breakout hit getting a lot of people's attention on that point. And so you were able to get like a lot of different perspectives. I mean, first person and third person in particular when it came to his early videos. And he would later like find more pieces of content that he could elaborate on, but the majority of them were shooters. Whereas Corridor Digital, they were able to just create almost anything with the kind of software. They were a lot more flamboyant, I guess, and productive with all the stuff that they were able to create inside of their videos. So they it seemed like they had a lot more creativity under their belt, but it was definitely uh, the best of both worlds when they were able to collaborate into 
the video game high school adaptation that they were able to go through and make on YouTube. And that as a production was a phenomenal way to bring everybody that you knew inside of the YouTube sphere and actually have the opportunity to go through and put it inside of a setting that would be instantly recognizable and easily adaptable as well as a low bar of entry. So that was a phenomenal piece that added to the YouTube landscape as a whole, especially when it came to high-end productions on that site where a lot of it was just fan-made. It was definitely an interesting step in the other direction. Oh yeah, and Epic Mealtime too. <laughs> Epic Mealtime was honestly just a phenomenal addition to the rest of it. And it was something that I was really interested in watching every week. It was so weird just seeing all of their faces inside of a couple of the productions of stuff that I hadn't watched in years, as well as the YouTube Rewind 2012 edition when people still enjoyed it. <laughs> it was just a blast from the past and it was definitely something that I do enjoy looking back on. And I kind of look back fondly at that YouTube landscape considering that it was just on the twilight era of being able to do whatever you wanted on YouTube and having the opportunity as the internet being the wild wild west of any kind of content and creative freedom that you were able to go through so I definitely miss it I miss it fondly in that case but you know what you have to continue to move forward and continue to evolve and in terms of <laughs> evolving the trends leading into what the 2010s like moving forward, moving into the 2010s proper, uh, we had the debut of the first anime adaptation of Sword Art Online. And I loved it. I loved the week-by-week -week piece of going through. It was hitting right at the time where video games had, like, become mainstream and they were already, like, at the upper echelon of entertainment-wise. And so the whole idea as a teenager where you get trapped in a video game and if you die in the game, you die for real. It's like, oh man, that would be so cool. That's such a good idea. Leading into that, it was something that I did get invested in and I was waiting for week by week with anticipation and the like. It was, it was, which I, which I started to teeter off as we ended up getting into Alfheim. I do remember really enjoying the first 14 episodes, I believe, which were the Uncrad arc, and then the last 11 led into Alfheim, and I really started to fall off, especially towards the climax of the final episode. So by the end of 2012, that was my whole, you know, critiquing birth, where it was just, oh boy, it used to be good, but this is why it was bad. And I remember getting the most upvotes I ever had on a comment in any piece of Reddit media, because for better or worse, I started on Reddit in 2012 as well, so that's just take that as you will. Holy shit. But the fact that my highest comment came on a post on the final episode of SAO's first season, it was like, oh, this is not a good sign. And thankfully, I didn't take that forward and become a Mal critic. I don't believe, even to this day, I've ever uploaded a review on Mal, and that's just for the better. So I'm kind of glad I just left it at that. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool. I don't need to do this again. Thankfully, I did end up missing Joshiraku as well as Kokoro Connect. Joshiraku, it seems like it would be a funny watch now, especially with the meta takes that it does inside the comedy genre, as well as poking fun as the anime medium as a whole. Uh, Kokoro Connect, I would watch later, and because that was the same deal where it was just the seasonal waifu stuff 
I continuously like saw photos and clips of Inaba like floating around both Reddit and YouTube, and was like, "What the what the fuck?" So that was the first like seasonal waifu thing that I ever ended up seeing. But instead of watching other better shows, I ended up watching stuff like Arcana Famiglia, which is an Italian mafioso anime power special, which I dropped about eight episodes in, which in reality I probably should have done it on episode two because it was, oh, cool, it's the mafia, it's black suits and superpowers, and no, in reality, I should have just not given it more than a chance. Although the shows that I did give a chance at that point, because I was a horny teenager, we ended up getting Hagura Yusha no Aesthetica, which was done by Studio Arms. Which, to be fair, I think X-Arm is the only thing that makes me laugh at that point, but definitely Arms hasn't really been making a lot nowadays. And it was just... What, what, what was it again? What was the synopsis for this? Where it's just like, the hero defeats the Demon Lord, and then he takes the Demon Lord's daughter back home to a reverse isekai futuristic setting and now he has to protect the demon lord's daughter from the rest of this futuristic student council it was fucking bad it's it's another one of those shows where why did i watch this instead of watching say kingdom or kuroko no basket like why oh yeah why why didn't i watch humanity is on the decline that would have been better that would have been a good show that would have been a great comedy I decided to not watch that and go with the, with more fitting titles in that case. So, you know what? Summer 2012, it's, it's summer. It's always the summer anime season. It's, for some reason, it is the one that normally gets the short end of the stick whenever it comes to releases. So, I don't know. What can you do? But in terms of the other media I did end up watching, there were huge pieces of film that ended up coming out in 2012. A lot of blockbusters, a lot of part twos, a lot of conclusions, a lot of rebirths, and a lot of very interesting introductions, not only in animation, but for live action as well. I never got into the Twilight series, but Twilight Breaking Dawn part two capped off the entire Twilight saga and franchise, and nobody else ever ended up talking about it after that. The Dark Knight Rises, while a fine movie at the time definitely started to erode as the months went by and it was just kind of one of those movies where just I didn't really enjoy it in hindsight and as it's gone on a lot of people just say hey just watch The Dark Knight because in all honesty you you could just take the standalone you could just take The Dark Knight as a standalone experience without having to watch Batman Begins or even watching The Dark Knight Rises afterwards considering how well it does as a standalone story, as kind of like an introduction or a secondary introduction to the Batman character. Even though there have been a lot of good live-action Batmans prior, since you had Michael Keaton, but you had never really had a... Um, well, I mean, even the Joker, even Jack Nicholson's Joker did a fantastic job inside of that, as well as Mark Hamill inside the animated series. But what you were able to accomplish with Heath Ledger's Joker, like everybody else that has said before him, it's the best Joker rendition in any form of media ever. I do agree with that, but it was just something that was so phenomenal and something that we didn't really know what we had, especially after Heath Ledger's untimely death. It was just something that I'm glad has stood the test of time and something that we can still go back on even with the amount of perforation and Batmans and different movies and films and TVs and for the rest of it. But... That's beside the point. 
You still ended up getting other comic book stuff like The Amazing Spider-Man with Sony's take. So they were going to throw their hat into the ring and the first one was fine. So it got the series going, but man, did that just not age gracefully, especially with how the rest of this franchise ended up going on. But we did end up getting a good conclusion to phase one where I do remember the biggest reaction I got I do remember the best experience out of all the movies that I ended up watching that year was grabbing about 10 of my friends and ordering tickets at school to go see the Avengers film. And the first Avengers film was a treat. It was a phenomenal experience to just go through and enjoy that with everybody else. And everybody was laughing at the jokes. Everybody was just going through from hysterical laughter to brutal silence to like all getting hyped up and pumped and engaged in the moment. Kind of like what modern shonen movies are doing now. The Avengers was definitely a movie where it was the first time I had ever experienced audience interaction, where everybody was there. They had all seen the same four movies that you did, or at least most of them, and they had all like known the same amount of stuff that you did, and you were all there to share the same experience. And it was a phenomenal time, especially with all my friends that ended up going out around that day since we were able to go and set that up and see it on day one, not the midnight screening, but day one, we were able to go through and all enjoy that as a good, as a crew and as a unit and have that opportunity to just go and experience that for ourselves. So that was honestly awesome. And then another one, which I, eh, well, I say conclusion, which it definitely seems so at the time, because I mean, Skyfall was a really good Bond film. I really enjoyed it. So that was honestly a great piece to go through it's just that specter and no time to die have kind of like yeah kind of uh just sullied it a bit and i it's just like oh daniel craig will never make another bond again so dude if they give him another 100 million of course he's going to say yes but besides that we ended up getting the first young adult novel adaptation that i ended up liking through the hunger games and that was still good it's just that at some point, I don't know if it was before or after. It, it was definitely before. It, before I ended up watching the first Percy Jackson and the Olympians movie. Oh my god, did I fucking hate that. And I'll get to that at another point. Maybe I'll invite Cookie on so both of us can just go through and elaborate on why we despise that franchise so much. Thankfully, Disney Plus is going to be having a new live-action miniseries devoted to The Lightning Thief. That's what I'm curious about, and that's what I'm excited for. But besides that, Channing Tatum had an interesting back-to-back, -back, uh, like a really good year for that, because he, he was not only starring in 22 Jump Street, but on the opposite side of the spectrum, he was also the main lead in Magic Mike. So, man, was he having a record year on that case. And then besides that, Quentin Tarantino ended up putting out Django Unchained, which was also a phenomenal film. Now, it was still incredibly violent. It was just the violence was a lot more condensed than his other movies. So it was just all saved for that last 20, 25 minute stretch. And that was crazy. But I mean, leading into at least the animation side of things, you ended up getting really lackluster and just complete failures in terms of both Brave and the Lorax. I, I say failures, even though Brave and the Lorax were like in the top 15 highest grossing films of that year. But... Looking back on it now, holy shit, are both of those movies bad? And then on the opposite side of the spectrum, you ended up getting stuff like The Adventures of Tintin, which go watch Breadsword's uh, video on that, considering like it is a phenomenal movie in hindsight. I, I liked it when I went to go watch it back in 2012, but nowadays, re-watching it, 
It is a technical marvel how they were able to do any of that story justice and what Spielberg and his team were able to accomplish with that story. Oh, it was amazing. And then the same deal, it was a really weird transition where it was like, oh man, I'm getting into anime, therefore all North American and all other forms of animation just cannot compare. I just can't deal with the fact that all of this stuff only comes out once a year even like even more so that it takes them years to make any Disney or Pixar or anything and these stories can't hold a candle to anything that these guys are able to produce out in the glory state of Japan it's just can you just shut the fuck up and in let people enjoy things if you did you would have gone to go see Wreck-It Ralph and you would have enjoyed the hell out of it <laughs> Because, yeah, like, at that point, it took me until last year for me to finally go and watch the first Wreck-It Ralph movie, and that is a really good uh, piece of animation. Like, not only is the story good, the video game references are subtle, but they're all well-placed in, like, the best of cases, as well as, like, the high moments and the low moments are just so poignant, and they hit their biggest peaks and their lowest lows at the right times in the movie. And it is still a fantastic story to be told. It's just that the second one is absolute dog shit, so just don't even, like, give it the time of day. But I will recommend the first Wreck-It Ralph by far. And then other pieces that I didn't end up getting to see until later in life would have easily been the first season of Gravity Falls. Phenomenal piece of animation. Everybody inside of that team now, almost like everybody who has touched that production is also working on phenomenal pieces of animation to this day. So I'm just really glad to see how their careers have evolved and that they're still making great stuff even after all this time. And then to mixed success, you ended up also getting the first season of Legend of Korra. So the exact same thing as where it's the same deal in a different state because the highest highs of Korra rival Avatar, but it's the low, b between it and Avatar, it has the lowest bars of quality, not only in animation, but writing and story-wise inside of the entire franchise. It is just either phenomenal or it is abysmal. I think there's like one season in the middle where it's kind of like average and it's just, okay, that's fine. But there are really weird and, like, rubber banding pieces, like, that are attributed to that story, which is definitely not all of their fault, because fuck, because fuck Nickelodeon in terms of their handling of the entire series. So they definitely take the majority of blame for this, and, like, you can only just apologize to everybody involved in the staff and Studio Mirror, and it was kind of tragic to see how that went, but that's just how it goes sometimes. And then finally concluding the fall of 2012, it's kind of fucking crazy, like how hard this went off. In terms of, there were some shows that I liked and some that I disliked. There were a lot of stuff that ended up getting popular for random reasons, but regardless, just the bar of quality for not only original pieces, but adaptations as well, were just like really getting up there. Unfortunately, like it was in the middle of, you know, SAO's second half, which was kind of a little bit of a clusterfuck. But besides that, you got the debut of the adaptation of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. Bar none, it was the most entertaining experience that I had that entire year. And it was so fucking crazy. And even though people say it's slow, it is a phenomenal start to what is now just a world-bending franchise as a whole. And so not only on that, you ended up getting phenomenal sci-fi dramas in terms of Psychopaths. The first season of Psychopaths is also phenomenal. 
even though nothing in the franchise has even touched its quality yet, the, fir- the first season still holds up to this day, and it is a fantastic show. Kyoto Animation ended up putting out their second work that I ever saw, which was uh, Chunibyo. That had a great ending to the degree that it was still fun. It was still, rom- like, cheeky, funny, romantic. Sometimes the drama hit, sometimes it didn't. But I really enjoyed the final episode, and it led it led off on a good impression. Except I don't think I ended up finishing the season two, and to that point, I haven't finished... What is the movie called? Take On Me? So that's also going to be something... I also really did enjoy the world of Sakurasa no Kanojo. Even though nowadays, when I look back on it, it's pretty bad uh, by just rom-com standards. It is definitely not something to be revisited or just looked at because it's just kind of awkward. In terms of action and storytelling, you ended up getting both K by Studio Gohans. Uh, I believe they're the same ones that ended up doing Handshakers. Yep. Oh boy, yeah. WZ, Handshakers. K looked good. First uh, season of Seitokai Yakuindomo looked good. Capellian, the filter was a little strong, so I can't really go and think back on that. But it was just like, yo, K, the style, the animation, it looked pretty good back in 2012. Besides that, in terms of other action, but with a wider story and a wider universe to cover, you, I ended up getting like my first major long-running shonen in Magi the Labyrinth of Magic, where... Long running doesn't re- like when you say long running shonen. Of course, you think you know One Piece, Bleach, Naruto, all the all that jazz, where it's hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Magi was, I think, to that the longest show that I had ever completed because not only did you end up getting the first twenty five episodes starting in October twenty twelve, but it moved on to like a fifty two episode run, which was kind of crazy at that point to, for me to think about. But then, like, also random like action and blood and titties. You ended up getting the Tomb, which was done by Madhouse, so of course it looked good. I didn't end up finishing uh, My Little Monster or Tonari no Kaibutsukun, which should have, which in hindsight is the better romance inside of this season as a whole compared to Say I Love You, which I, at the time, I thought, oh man, this is so sweet, this is so romantic, oh, I'm just getting the warm fuzzies just seeing these characters go about their lives and fall in love. And then going back, it's like, man, this is kind of, this is kind of sus, this is kind of boring. So in hindsight, uh, My Little Monster was definitely like the best romance of that, of that season. But then also you ended up getting, which is something I don't really know what I think about nowadays. But at the time, it was a really good fantasy sci-fi story, which, eh, it's kind of a mix of both once you get into it. But I mean, Shinsekai Yori from the New World, it is it, like it was a really interesting world that they end, ended up setting up and continuously moving forward on that. Like, it had a phenomenal setup and power system and world building and a really good setting. It's gotten nothing but criticism as the years have gone on, especially by Digibro that I remember. But so it's it's something that I might have to rewatch at some point. But right now, I just it's not a priority for sure. I did remember seeing other bone stuff like uh, Zetsuin no Tempest, which is a weird modern superpower setting based on William Shakespeare's Tempest. I watched a handful of episodes of Gintama Apostrophe's season, which was the one where I believe they fight Obero for one of the fir- either the first or second time. It, it's 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 kind of difficult. I ran into Gintama like completely blind at that point, so that was really fun. A lot of good action, a lot of good music. That was my first um, entryway into Gintama, and I'm not gonna watch it all. But to this day, I'm pretty sure I've gotten like through 75 episodes of Gintama, so getting there. 
Uh, I did end up dropping stuff like To Love Root Darkness because it was just still, it was horny, but not horny enough. Codebreaker was easily the worst action show of the season. I dropped that. Little Busters was the, was it a key adaptation? Yeah, it was a visual novel adaptation. I believe it was a key adaptation as well, done by JC Staff. But it was just, it was one of those, yeah, weird fantasy mystery shows based on slice of life high schoolers that got more and more boring as it went along. And I never did end up finishing until years later, and it still didn't hold up. Robotics Notes was definitely something that was also like, uh... Wait, this is a... F oh, it's one of those semicolon ones. Oh, so this is something that's... It, before I ever watched Steins Gate, apparently this was done by the same company that did Steins Gate, and it was an adaptation of a visual novel because they were building a robot, but it's, I don't know. That didn't end up taking off. Wow, Zion Saga DT. I only remember the fact that dude gets both of his balls busted in one episode, or in not one episode, but separate episodes. <laughs> the dude gets kicked with fucking spiked cleats and he gets one ball broken and then he gets another ball broken at a later episode. And he's like, oh my God, I can't return to my fiance. She's going to hate me because I have no more balls and no more way to conceive children. Oh my God, my life is over. <laughs> that's uh, That's the only thing I remember from that show. Uh, like, what were the big ones? I didn't end up reading Bakuman. I still didn't watch German Gun or a Madaka Box. Nekomonogatari ended up coming out inside of that season as well, and it wasn't something that I was able to go through and jump in, because it was the same deal. It's like, oh, so it's the same one as this one, but it's, I don't know what's going on. And so I promptly dropped it and picked it up a couple of years later, when I finally did end up going through the entire Monogatari series, and that was definitely a much more enjoyable experience but something that was a really weird way to end off, which was one that I didn't end up jumping to, like, years later, considering it was the one of the initial shows done by Studio Trigger was Inferno Cop. Even I was like, man, this looks fucking stupid, and it did for a good time. And the fact that it was a duo production between Comics Wave and Trigger with an A and a B team, and just alternating as well as just throwing in the randomest pieces of comedy as well as like action that you could probably just do in photoshop <laughs> man was it weird 2012 was like a really weird case a lot of up and downs a lot of just really shaky pieces of animation shows like it's i mean just like every year it's just like every, i mean it's just like every year it's just like life there's ups there's downs there's a couple of shows that are going to bring you on and just re-examine your ideas and strengths of the medium and the other one also just makes you just question your own life choices and why you came here in the first place i don't know 2012 overall with me getting into anime as a whole i'm surprised like me nowadays if these were the shows that i had to watch i'd be just i would not hold on to a lot of them i would have watched a fraction in terms of what they were able to go through and produce and accomplish. And there were definitely only probably a show a season that I would have really enjoyed. So in hindsight, it wasn't that good of a year. But at the time, what can I say? It ended up getting me deeper into the medium of anime that I ever would have thought possible. So at least I can give it that. Mm -hmm.